I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Here in the Northern Rockies, dark winter months are outlasted in basements, dens, and nooks, where kindred souls gather together to share intel swap fly patterns, and relive the memories from seasons past. This gathering spot known locally as the February Room is the inspiration for this podcast. No matter the season, the door is always open to those with a fly fishing story to tell. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA, the North American distributor for composite development fly rods and accessories. 40 years of Kiwi ingenuity and graphite technology now available at cd-fishing.us or your local CD USA dealer. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. And remember to go fishing. Here's your host, the Carnops, and this is the February Room. Our guest today is one of the hardest working guys in outdoor journalism. He is the fishing and supervising editor of Meat Eater and a bona fide fishing and hunting junkie. Sam Lundgren, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Justin. Good to hear from you, buddy. Yeah, you too, boss. I appreciate you taking the time, man. Um, I know you just got back from Belize, so you're probably uh, scrambling to get caught up on work. Oh, uh, yeah, I am to a certain degree, but luckily we had Wi-Fi down there, and I kind of kind of stayed on top of it, so I'm just cruising. I'm always busy, though, so it, I don't know. It doesn't seem abnormally, abnormally uh, overworked right now. Well, good deal, man. Well, we like to start things off with a fishing story around here. Do you have one teed up for us? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you, you know, you, you brought up a pretty good one right right before we right before we started a recording. Um, as you mentioned, I was in Belize last week, and uh, you know, we were fishing our faces off, obviously. So there's plenty of plenty of stories. It, it's all starting to kind of meld together. Honestly, just lots of really. Uh, lots of really finicky permit that hurt my feelings um <laughs> <laughs> that are kind of becoming a monolith in my memory but uh but yeah we we did get into a big school of uh kind of medium-sized tarp in one of the days and that was that was certainly a experience i won't forget anytime soon as i'm sure you can understand yeah man um I, i've had similar experiences as, as you just had in belize the permit have always just kind of baffled and frustrated me i've cast uh, probably a hundred of them um and the tarpon have always kind of saved the day i've had uh, i've had some 
some pretty awesome tarpon fishing down there and those you know 30 50 60 pounders that you get into in belize are just perfect on a fly rod in, in my mind yeah man i can't i can't think of something that's more fun than a than a 50 60 pound tarpon um yeah i think no. it was our th- our third day down there <clears throat> we were out chasing permit all day and you know we saw probably anywhere from 10 to 40 every day we went out most of a lot of them tailing uh up on shallow you know reefs or well let's see uh the kind of coral bars if you will um right. but man they, they were just being picky as all hell and and super jumpy and the guides were telling us that you know with the weather and everything it was just hard as it could get but anyway we uh got done with a day and and headed back to the lodge and and a couple of the guys who are working on renovating this 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 uh this old lodge that they're they're uh, putting a bunch of new touches on um they're like hey there's uh there's a bunch of tarpon rolling out front <laughs> we're like oh well i guess we should probably go back out then and the guide's like yep grab grab your 12 weight he went and borrowed a sinking uh, like a false sink line uh, from from the GM and the GM gave us a couple of those uh, gummy minnows that uh, I think Blaine Chocolate invented. He invents all the cool flies these days. Um, and we, we went out there and just kind of anchored up on the edge of the flat in front of the in front of the lodge, um, kind of hanging out over about 40 feet of water and could see tarpon splashing around out a little bit further. And I just started blasting blasting that 12 weight out there and letting it sink and letting it sink. And on my first cast, uh, I, I brought the fly back over a, a sandbar that, so you could kind of see what was going on. And I was like, Oh man, there's a big barracuda behind it. And the guide goes, no ma, that's a tarpon. <laughs> <laughs> and it, and, it, and it, it, it burned out of there. And then I cast again and it got bumped and I cast again and I had another one follow. And then, you know, kind of, you know, we were just in them and I think it was like sixth or seventh cast and came tight on one and, you know, it just dumped offline and started jumping. That was, was probably a probably 50, 60 pounder and survived five jumps with it, had it on for about 10 or 15 minutes. The, the, everybody at the lodge was out on the beach taking photos <laughs> and stuff. Uh, the GM flew a drone out over us. Um, trying to capture that he didn't he didn't get it on the drone um i don't think but he, he got he got a great video just with his cell phone from the beach of that of that fish jumping but man i i thought i had it whooped it, it was it was just on just diving down deep i felt it wearing out i was working it up i, I felt like i was fighting a halibut you know kind of yeah laying the cork into it then reeling down hard then then lifting slowly and reeling down hard and i was i was bringing it up um you know stout 12 weight with a good drag but somehow it just shook its head and spit that hook out which was ah <sighs> oh, they sure do man i uh i've been I, I i hooked my first tarpon when i was 14 and i'm 32 now and i still haven't landed one yeah yeah well i mean uh, you're not alone there and you know i'm i'm still very much in in the the permit drolls i'm in the doldrums there i'm kind of mad at those fish right now i need a little break i got super lucky on my first tarpon in belize i was out with my dad and this was uh you know like 20 years ago and uh 
we'd been permit fishing all day and, and hadn't caught anything, of course. And um, we did get some bone fish. My dad got some, some bone fish, so he was content. And uh, we went out right before dark to this cut and we were just kind of blind casting. And I'd never hooked anything big on a fly rod before up to that point, anything like that. And, uh, you know, the, the fly just stopped and I thought I was caught on the bottom. And, uh, and then it started swimming and some, the thing jumped like five times. I didn't know what I was doing, but it just had hooked itself so that it wasn't going to come off. And I, I caught it with my dad. So that was a, a pretty, oh, awesome, awesome. Uh, pretty awesome memory. Yeah, it was really cool. That's cool, man. What part of Belize were you in? That first, let's see, the first couple times I went down there, we were fishing out of uh, Southwater Key. Yeah, we uh, we actually went up and fished around the docks of Southwater Key for bonefish the last day. Yeah, that's the exact same spot I'm sure that my dad caught his. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a cool place. It is a cool place. Yeah, they were saying that uh, the, the bonefish were, got really netted out in in that area <clears throat> and we didn't uh, a couple of the the other guys saw one bonefish one of the days fishing for permit but i never saw i never saw a single bonefish except when we ran all the way up there we were on northeast key at the blue horizon lodge um and we ran all the way up there to south water and we're just like we're literally casting up to a dive boat that they were loading tanks onto in front of in front of the lodge there but there was just a there was a massive school of bones swimming around there were some pretty big ones in there and then we went around the other side of the island and there was another big school um but yeah that's how we we got to go have our little bit of uh go get our go get our consolation prize from the the permit beating us up one of one of my buddies uh lived lived out on south water for a while and he would take uh an indicator and a hair's ear and just pound on those bonefish. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious, man. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> yeah, I totally believe it, though, because I probably put 20 flies in front of those fish. And you would show them one a couple times and, like, get a swipe, hook one, lose it, or, you know, get just rejected, rejected. And you put a new fly in there, and it was like a whole new ball game. But I borrowed a, I borrowed um, a a fly box from my, my, my good buddy and colleague, uh, Miles Nolte, who's the director of fishing at, at meat eater. And he's from Hawaii. Uh, so grew up fishing for those super finicky picky bones around Honolulu and had all these, all these really badass, super lightweight, super sparse bonefish patterns. And, uh, what, one of the boats from our group went, was around the other island, other side of the island first and messing with those bonefish and didn't catch any of them and came around, asked how we were doing and we'd caught a couple and, and then we kind of like switched up and we went over there and I, when we got on that school of bonefish, I caught one on the first cast with one of Miles' flies. <laughs> cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was super cool little, little sparse shrimp pattern. Nice. So this kind of, uh, this notion that, that some anglers have right now that uh, that the fish had the permit haven't been unmolested and they're going to be bitey. That's not necessarily coming to fruition uh, in your in your experience, huh? No, no, um, it, it did not. That was not my experience in the slightest. Um, but you know, again, I, I have to wonder about the climactic conditions. Um, it was it was get, the weather was getting snotty the first day we were there. And the first day we had two 
really good shots at tailing permit. <clears throat> I had the first one and it was, it was a hard shot. I was, I waded up into these mangroves and I was casting straight into about 30 mile an hour wind. Um, but got it in front of a, got the crab in front of a permit and got it to follow almost to the rod tip. And it just freaking saw me. So it was actually, it was behaving, <clears throat> it was behaving aggressively, you know, as far as permit go. I mean, it, it, it charged the fly and just, you know, wouldn't commit, but it did, it was very interested. And then about an hour later, um, we ran into one in a lot deeper water and my buddy just put a fly in front of it and it ate it. Um, and he fought it almost to the boat and it broke the fly. But then the next four days, man, it was just, you know, the weather was just kind of mixed up and, you know, I, I can't claim to be any sort of expert on flats fishing, but I know with trout and bass, steelhead, that stability in the barometer, in the weather patterns, tip tends to be useful. And, and, you know, sometimes, a lot of times, in fact, when the wet, the barometer's falling, when snotty weather's coming, the, the wet, the fishing can be really good because they know, and, you know, this is pure speculation. There really isn't a lot of science to back this up, but you know, you can guess that the fish might know the bad weather's coming. So get well, the getting's good because they're not usually feeding as hard when it's bad. Um, but yeah, those, those four days, man, it, it really, uh, it, it was, it was truly humbling, the most humbling angling experience I've ever had. And, you know, so there's, there's times that you, you get to thinking that you're a, a good fisherman or something. <laughs> and then, you go try to fish for permit and you're like, oh yeah, actually I, I kind of suck at this. I, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. I, I don't know how yeah, I can claim yeah. to be, I don't know how I can claim to be the fishing editor of a, of a major, uh, outdoors, um, media outlet. Um, but yeah, they just so many times, man, like I felt like, I mean, there was like a couple dozen times when I felt like I did everything right where I snuck in on a happy tailing bonefish and put a cast like, you know, exactly where the guide told me to. They're like foot and a half in front of his face and drop it gently and like put that fly in there and they just like go look at it, then move off or just swim right past it or look at it and follow it for a, a you know, a slow strip and then turn off or just or just flush, you know, it, it, like, and, and the guides are telling me to put it on his nose. And, but even when you, even when you do that, sometimes, um, they just, they just spook and they were just, they were being exceptionally spooky for what the guides said. Um, so, but you know, there were guys out there, uh, who were, were catching, were catching, um, permit, like, uh, the, the guides were saying, oh, that's that's Will Flack's boat. Um, you know, the the, right. whole, the the Sims guy with the permit tattoo on his neck. And he was guiding uh, Rooster Levens out of uh, Twin Bridges. And, and they caught, I think they caught three that week. And they were using this big, ugly, ridiculous fly that all of our guides laughed about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah, it's 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 just so hard. It's just such a mental game too, especially with the flies, man. God, that that brings up a whole other thing because these guys down there, and you know, to provide just a little bit more context, uh, this guy this lodge was was founded by a guy named uh, Lincoln Westby, um, 
who's been guiding permit on those flats for 40 years. And he, he just turned 80 this year and, and really pioneered uh, that permit fishery, founded the Blue Horizon Lodge in the night in the early 90s, I think. Um, and it's still the head guide out there. It, it's since been uh, acquired and uh, kind of remodeled by a by a resort chain. Um, but you know, he, he, he's like, he's the, he's the godfather of that fishery and, and all these other guides, you know, look up to him just, you know, like a, like an absolute King among Kings for, for this saltwater flats fishing. And, and he, and, um, Will Bauer, who I think was the owner of the, the fly shop in Redding, um, back in the day, yeah, he, you know, invented, inventor of the Bauer crab. Exactly. Right. So guess what, what, guess what fly they fish exclusively. Yeah. I, I I've been on that, uh, on that program. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. And, and like, they told me that and I tied a bunch of my own Bauer crabs, uh, just cause I was so damn excited. I didn't know what to do with my hands before going down on this trip. I was just tying <laughs> Bauer crabs, tying Bauer crabs. They didn't like mine for some reason. Cause I used like, I made, I made, uh, sorry, my dog's chewing on his, uh, his duck Sounds toy like a parrot. quacks. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a duck toy that quacks. Yeah. So they, they have this like, you know, almost slavish devotion to the Bauer crab and I get it. I mean, like Lincoln has, is personally responsible for catching over 2000 permit. And that's just since he's had the lodge, just since he started counting. And he said, it's like that, like 90% of that's on the Bauer crab. So on one hand, you've got to, you got to take the man's word for it. He's an amazing guy, amazing wealth of knowledge, so kind, so generous. But <clears throat> I saw so many permit refuse that bower crab. And I also didn't like how it fished because we were in really shallow water sometimes. And it, it, it in that the shot pattern is pretty heavy. Um, and, and it lands pretty hard. It lands hard. And then <clears throat> it sinks into the coral really quickly. And they keep telling you to like, like if you have a permit's interest, the best thing you can do is to let it fall because that's what a crab would do, right? It would like dive down and try to get into the right. coral before the fish could eat it. Um, but you know, you, when you do that, you're always, you're always, uh, in danger of hanging up. And we hung up a ton of times. Like there was a couple times where, like where my buddy Nick hung up and the fish kept tailing and was still hanging out. Now we like grabbed another rod and swapped out and he kept fishing with like a hung up fly line in the way. <laughs> you know? um, and so I wanted to, so one, I wanted to fish something that wasn't as heavy that would kind of drift on the current a little bit more. Cause there was a lot of current in a lot of the places and a lot of just wind chop. Like we were, we were literally casting into standing waves for some of these permit, um, just because there was so much chop coming off the sea and hitting these bars and piling up and breaking and white capping and stuff. It was, it was wet and wild, man. It was like trout fishing in a river in some of these situations, but, but man, I just got, I saw so many fuse that bower crab and, and it was hard. And we, I mean, we had real time knowledge of what our friends were catching them on in that same area and also i had a i had another friend in san pedro who they were who they were catching permit and another friend who was in playa blanca in mexico that same week and they were catching permit goes to show just what you know what the weather can do for permit fishing and now a brief message from our sponsors fly lab reels provides silky smooth disc drags at a click and fall price 
paired with mid-arbor spool for quick line retrieval, the FlyLab family of fishing reels is the best value on the river. With four models to choose from, priced from $99 to $249, you won't find these reels anywhere other than the local CD dealer or at cd-fishing.us. And remember to go fishing. Um, so you grew up in you grew up in the in, in Puget Sound in Seattle, right? Sure did. Can you tell me kind of you know, Woodby Island? That's right, man. Can you kind of describe uh, for us what it was like growing up there from a fishing standpoint? Yeah, man. Uh, it was immersive. I was out fishing for salmon and halibut long before I could walk. Um, we, my, my, well, my parents lived in, in Bellevue, kind of like east side of Seattle, until I was two. And then we moved up to Whidbey. They got a place on a little harbor on a, on a high bluff with a, with stairs down to the, down to a dock on the beach. And, you know, my dad's a, a diehard fisherman, so, you know, I can't claim to, you know, have that any of this was my volition, but you know, he, there's pictures of me in a stroller, uh, or, you know, a, a kid child seat out in his boat with him trolling for salmon in front of the house and around the Island and stuff. When I was a, when I was a, like, you know, like a toddler, we had a couple, uh, little lakes within about two miles of our house. And my godparents moved, bought a house and moved to one of those, uh, when I was really young. And so we had a, you know, a dock and a boat we could use on, on a little lake too, that was, you know, a bike ride from the house or, you know, two minute drive, you know, just, just for little stalker rainbows in that lake. Uh, and then there was another lake a little farther that had bigger wild rainbows and, um, lar- and, uh, largemouth bass. Um, but yeah, I grew up <clears throat> fishing a ton for salmon. Uh, Whidbey Island is, just is kind of like a barrier right at the in uh the entry of the strait of Juan de fuca uh you know that cut between the olympic peninsula and vancouver island so like every salmon that comes into puget sound passes through there and the first thing they hit is whidbey um and so millions every year hit whidbey and then follow the beach the beaches down the island to their you know various spawning streams so there's a lot of uh there's a lot of points and and beaches that are very popular for surf casting for salmon and i did a ton of that growing up launching buzz bombs off the off the beaches you know my (laughs) my my mom would like pick me up from school and pick up a buddy and like drop us off at the beach for the day and then come pick us up at dark you know go catch a couple cohos or, or pinks or but we you know we'd bump into we'd bump into chinook doing that too i mean i i don't think i ever ended up landing one but i mean i, I definitely saw people land 30 pound kings off the beach um on a handful of occasions um but yeah as i as i said my <clears throat> my dad's a super serious fisherman and hunter and just water guy and we always had a lot of different boats and lived on the water and so you know, I, I was running, running power boats long before I could, long before I was driving cars. And, um, I was just, I would, you know, I, even as a, even as a kid, I would go down to the beach and take out a kayak or a Zodiac dinghy and row around and catch flounder and rockfish and sea run cutthroat sometimes and all sorts of stuff. And then, you know, later, later into, and my growth as an angler, my dad and I got really into lingcod fishing, um, and really kind of developed a, a, a style that's that's picked on 
picked up in, in recent years, but people weren't talking about it back then, which was, um, you know, casting and retrieving up into, up into, you know, rocky areas, especially around the north end of the island, around like Deception Pass Bridge and up into the San Juans and, um, yeah, casting spin, uh, spinner baits and inline spinners. And then later we found out about swim baits coming out of Southern California. Um, and we were cast, it was basically just musky, musky and pike and like giant bass gear that we, that we got once we figured out that these big lingcod actually live in really shallow. Cause you know, the, um, just the, the standard, uh, you know, kind of conventional wisdom with lingcod is that you jig down deep and you're looking for structure and hundred to 300 feet of water. But, you know, we, we saw these other guys catch, catch a lingcod in shallow and they left and we went in there and, and caught a nice one in like 20 feet of water. And, and so we got really into that. And, um, lingcod season's only like a month and a half long in Washington, but we got to the point where we were pretty much going out every day, even when I had school, um, there was one time where, <laughs> where I, I, I showed up at my homeroom class, uh, an hour late, but the, the principal walked me, walked me in and did like the Jedi mind tricks, you know, motion with his hand and said, he's excused. And <laughs> he reeks of link cod. <laughs> and that's, and, and, and that was because my dad had, had invited him out link cod fishing with us that morning. And he, and he stuck like a 10 pounder. Um, I took, a, we took a bunch of my teachers out, out, out fishing, but yeah, we would, we would go out for an hour before school in the morning and, and often catch a limit of ling. And, um, we ended up catching some really nice ones. I mean, I got one that was over 30 and my dad got one that was over 50. Um, and that Jeez. one was in 25 feet of water. Wow. And you, you experimented, uh, with, with flies on those too, right? I did. Yeah. That was a, that was later. That was once I started <clears throat> freelancing for fishing magazines, uh, you know, in like grad school and, and beyond in my early twenties, but I went back for a season and some friends and I took, a took a bunch of tarpon gear out and, and we went out to the same spots where I developed, where my dad and I developed some of those techniques and, uh, started winging around some big giant flies and we all, uh, all three of us landed a lingcod on, on the fly. And a couple of them, um, were visual takes, which was oh wow, pretty incredible, man. Um, and, and in the past, I've even seen them break the surface. Like when you're cranking hard to, to rip a, you know, big plastic bait up over a kelp mat, like lingcod will blow it up just like a pike. Uh, wow. it's, it, it's one of the coolest fisheries in the world. They're like musky. I I've used this, this line at tons, tons of times, but they're like muskies, like inner city saltwater cousins that are full, like covered in spines and leopard print tattoos, uh, and get way bigger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're gnarly fish, man. I've, uh, I've had some experiences with them. Um, you know, I, I was beating my head against the wall to catch one on a fly, this was a long time ago, but I had read a book by John Shuey and, uh, you know, he described going out on the jetties at night. And, uh, and so I, I tried like hell, um, to get one doing that and, you know, damn near drowned a couple of times. <laughs> I, I believe I finally hooked one. I never saw it, but I, but I hooked something big one night and, uh, and it, it went down and it, dug in and I had to cut my fly line off. So 
yeah <laughs> yeah that, that that's uh that's adding uh insult to injury yeah yeah so i kind of i i shelved the idea uh after that and then i remember talking to you some time ago when we were time flies that one night i think and you were kind of telling me about your experiences with them up there and uh definitely kind of rekindled my interest because i think there's a place on the south course south coast of oregon where i've jigged them before but it was only in like 20 or 25 feet of water and uh and i think you could get them on flies in there too yeah i bet you could and you know it's interesting man um because lingcod certainly have different patterns and behaviors in in different areas uh and I, I commercial fish uh in prince william sound alaska for four summers through college and grad school and it, it's super similar kind of habitat waters um i mean it looks a lot like the san juan's really steep rocky kind of cliffy stuff coming straight into the water drop-offs and rock piles and pinnacles and you know every night we were anchoring up and stuff like that in some little cove um after delivering our fish and i can't tell you how many times i chucked swim baits and point wilson darts and and all that stuff in shallow looking for lingcod and you know this is like four whole summers of trying to do that and you know you pick up a, a little bitty lingcod in there every now and then but never ever saw a big one in shallow we and we we did catch some big lingcod but it was always when we were jigging for halibut um way out way out deep on the you know the 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 shoals and in some kind of deep area between islands and you know more more traditional lingcod stuff even some pinnacles and and whatnot um so i was always i've always been intrigued by that fact that big ones will live really shallow in washington but not in alaska and i have to wonder if it, if it has something to do with you know washington's had a giant die off of its rockfish population and the cod are pretty much are gone um and so you got to wonder if those lingcod are kind of responding to that lack of prey and getting in shallow to eat the the flounder and the sand abs and and kind of taking on a different prey species yeah and i've even wondered because where i've fished them down on the south coast you know you've got the the rogue the elk the Chetco River's coming in, and the lings are shallow in there. So I wondered if they didn't, you know, target steelhead and salmon smolt going out. And, I mean, a 50-pounder could eat an adult adult steelhead. Oh, um, a 20-pounder could eat just, an adult steelhead. Yeah, right. So this is just total speculation. But I've, I've, always, I've also wondered if those fish were in kind of shallow, too, taking, uh, taking advantage of, uh, of the anadromous fish at the river mouths. Yeah, that's a that's a real good point, man. And I, and I bet that I bet that would hold water. And I've heard and, you know, like the everybody's biggest lingcod is caught on something else. Like the biggest one I saw my buddy caught in Alaska ate like a nine pound arrow tooth flounder. It's probably a 40 pound <laughs> ling and it had it like sideways in its mouth. And I've heard of people fighting a fighting a pink salmon on, on the beach and, and having lingcod come up and eat it. So I, I know they eat salmon. Um, and I, I would absolutely imagine that's accurate. 
Well, speaking of salmon and steelhead, um, I'm sure the the present state of of those runs way heavily on your mind. Um, yeah. And one of the one of the biggest issues at hand here in our neck of the woods um, is the removal of the four dams on the Lower Snake. Um, I understand that your colleague Ryan O'Callaghan was recently the uh, the uh, moderator of a roundtable discussion. Um, can you give us a kind of a synopsis on, on that proposal? Yeah, you bet. Um, yeah, that proposal comes from um, Mike Simpson, a congressman from Idaho, um, who's who's a relatively conservative Republican, um, which, you know, it's interesting to see this massive environmentalist proposal coming out of out of that wing. But, you know, I've been following his uh uh, statements on on I, the state of Idaho salmon and steelhead for a long time, and and he said a lot of really interesting things about how he believes it would be a sin against God to allow steelhead and salmon to go extinct in Idaho, and and I really think that that's a, a guiding force for him that 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 he he feels like you know it would be a great injustice to to the world and and to the fish and to the people. Uh, especially indigenous communities to allow these these amazing runs uh, to to blip out. So he, there, he's been he's been kind of he's been talking about this for a long time, and and I and we knew through our back channels that they'd been working on this proposal for a long time. Um, and I got a, I got a little bit of a preview of it and, and wrote an article about it. But basically what this proposal is, is it, and, and, and if people say that it, this is a proposal to tear down the dams, like that is just simply reductionist. That's just, that's not really what it is. It, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, like a fundamental rethinking of, of, of the energy infrastructure of the Pacific Northwest and um, the the shipping infrastructure for getting you know Idaho and you know kind of the greater inland empires uh, agricultural products to market um, and you know within that is the removal of of those dams but you know it, you can't just tear down those dams it's not going to work that way uh, it's not going to you know pe people are people aren't going to accept that. And it would also really hamstring certain elements of, of our society. Um, so, you know, what he's talking about is, um, is finding ways to replace that, that lost energy. And to be clear, those, those four dams on the lower snake were not designed for energy production. They were designed for, um, barge traffic. Uh, so they, they made made the the lower Snake River into a series of of lakes, pretty much, uh, so that barge is full of wheat and potatoes and and whatnot coming out of uh, Lewiston, Idaho, could get out to Astoria, um, Washington, or to Portland or, or wherever it may be. Um, uh, so they're they're they they don't produce much in the way of of megawattage and it's 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 typically used as kind of like a backup system for when some of the other more important dams in the columbia basin aren't firing on all cylinders but it's like it, it, on an average year it's less than five percent of the the grid's production from from the the you know whatever 30 something dams in the columbia basin 
Um, but so first of all, it's replacing that lost uh, energy with um, truly renewable energy because hydroelectric clearly isn't renewable. Um, if it's <laughs> depleting, uh, lo people love to say that, but I'm like, well, it's depleting the salmon resources. So right. how is that renewable? And plus like the Bonneville Power Administration, federal agency that operates those dams has, has dumped something like $17 billion into storing these salmon and they're worse than they're, they've ever been. And they keep right. being like, well, we've got this new idea for these new type of turbines. And it's only going to no, cause it's work. And it never works. And it's like the turbines probably aren't the totality of the problem. I mean, it's like the smallmouth bass and the northern pike minnow and the walleye. And and then the and it's the temperature of of the this lower Snake River. Like there was a couple years ago when Idaho lost pretty much its entire sockeye run, which, you know, go, only goes back to Redfish Lake. Uh, I think they had some 2000 coming back that were counted at Bonneville and 75% of them died in the snake because the water was so hot and you can't, you can't change that if you have those dams because the water isn't moving. Um, and, and, you know, kind of another major element of this proposal is um, they're going to uh, buy and rebuild a rail line to replace um, the lost barge traffic because, you know, the, the, the loudest um, opponents to this idea and, you know, this idea of taking the dams out of the snake has been around for my whole life. Like I've been hearing about this for 20 years, but the people always screaming the loudest against it are, are the, the wheat producers. Um, and I went to college in Eastern Washington and knew a lot of wheat farmers because I like to hunt whitetails. Um, on their places. And I've talked to a lot of people about this and they're like, well, yeah, but I mean, how are we going to, how are we going to get our, our wheat to market? And, you know, most of that stuff's going to Asian markets, which is why it needs to go out the mouth of the right. Columbia. It's here, neither here nor there, but still, you know, it's important um, that we facilitate that. So, you know, basically, basically what they did, and I've, I've interviewed his staff about this a number of times is, is they said, you know, we started off, by saying, how do we keep Idaho salmon and steelhead and keep the dams? And and went through, exhausted every situation and, and realized that, you know, that wasn't really possible. And then after that, they said, like, how do we maintain Idaho salmon and steelhead and remove the dams and keep everyone whole? Um, and I, it, it's just, it's just really nice to see because it's like such a, such a holistic bipartisan process um, that's really trying to meet everyone's concerns and do it in a way that doesn't really, you know, f anyone over, pardon my language. And, and, and I really, I really respect that. Uh, it's going to be expensive. It's a $32 billion proposal and it's supposed to, you know, take about 10 years. Uh, you know, with dam actual dam removal being kind of the last step. So it's like building wind turbines, it's, you know, it's rebuilding this rail line. It's uh, drawing down those reservoirs, rebuilding the Lewiston Clarkston kind of waterfront because, you know, <laughs> they have a nice waterfront now and, and but now it's going to be like 300 yards away from the water uh, separated by a giant mud flat. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of work to be done, but um, you know I'm hopeful that this proposal does go somewhere. You know there's a lot of talk about infrastructure 
projects, but I've been disappointed to hear that it hasn't been seized on with more enthusiasm from um, Washington's congressional delegation, which, as you're aware, is, is primarily Democratic. But even the Republicans, you know, like Kathy McMorris Rogers, Dan Newhouse from representing Eastern Washington, they hate this. They have always hated this. They're diehard damn supporters. That's what they think their constituents want. You're probably never going to get them, even though they may be in the same caucus as Mike Simpson. But <clears throat> The, you know, all the legislators coming from the west side of Washington, you know, including both of the senators, haven't uh, haven't embraced this, really. And that's mm. very disappointing and uh, definitely smacks of partisanship. Um, they don't maybe they don't want to follow along with, you know, Republicans plan. They think they could do it better. But, you know, I, it's not I don't think it can. I don't think it's going to get any better than this. And I think the failure to act, uh, we're going to see the, the consequences very, very soon if, if nothing's done about that system. And it will collapse one of the most important fishing economies in the country and one of the greatest, one of the greatest fisheries in the world. I mean, when I was living in Missoula, I fished the salmon in the clear water all the time. And oh, it's just some of the coolest stuff, man. Um, it would be, it would be, you know, just such a shame to see that blip out. Yeah, I just sincerely hope that um, that it can all we can get it all resolved in time, and the, the the fish don't vanish or become genetically obsolete before um, before drastic measures can be taken. Because we're at the point where we need drastic measures. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, this has been going on so long, and you know, it's just the, been the elephant in the room. It's it's time to. I know it's expensive and, 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 you know, people like to argue with me about this. They're like, Oh, the federal debt isn't big enough. I'm like, well, I mean, is that really your concern? I mean, it's already like $50 trillion or whatever. <laughs> like, you know, like you're, you're really worried right now. Like, or is that your, is that your real concern? Because like, you know, salmon and steelhead runs to me are, are invaluable. They're there. It's, it's, you're not able to put a price tag on it. Money doesn't, you know, economics cannot comprehend the value of those, of those species. And, and to, to try to do that, I think is just, is an insult to, to anglers, to native communities and to wild ecosystems. Yeah. Yeah. And to a, a species that's been around since time immemorial. You know, and, and the thing with dam removal too, now I know this is on a much smaller scale, but um, it seems like such a just complex and daunting task to people. But uh, they took down the mill down, the Milltown Dam here in what I think 2008 or something. And um, it was really kind of rather uh, uh, anticlimactic to watch. Like there was no surge of water that, you know, flooded the valley or anything like that and um and obviously there's been um, a concerted effort to to do all of the the cleanup from the mining tailings um from from the butte region and everything but uh but the clark fork river has really really responded and it's never been in the time that i've lived here it's never been a, a healthier stream than it is now yeah i agree 
Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, that's a, that's a, again, a, a, a microcosm of what we're looking at on the removal of the four dams on the lower snake. But it is possible. If you can build a dam, you can take one down. Absolutely. And, you know, I did my, uh, my undergraduate thesis on the Elwha River uh, dam removal project, which is just, you know, a little ways past uh, where I grew up, kind of right outside of Port Angeles. And previously had been the one of the had been the largest dam removal project in the history of the world, and was talked about for a long time. You know, kegged off a really great productive river that was known to hold like ninety and hundred pound chinook a long time ago, and, and blocked it off three miles from the ocean. Uh, and that was completed in I think twenty thirteen. And I'm really good friends with uh, John McMillan, who used to work for uh, NOAA as a biologist, but now run is the science director of, of Trout Unlimited's uh, steelhead effort. What, what is it? Wild Steelheaders United. Um, and he, uh, you know, has been very instrumental in that Elwha project and goes and snorkels it several times a year. And it, it's, it's incredible how the fish have responded. You know, they thought it was going to be a 30 year re- recovery timeline. They thought they were going to have to be restocking fish way up in the national park to kind of jumpstart it. But it's like, you know, they were finding big native steelhead above the original, above the, the lower dam site weeks after it was gone. You know, wow. when, when they thought the river conditions couldn't support fish, they were finding steelhead that were moving up through there. Then they were fi- then, you know, a couple months later, they're finding paired up spawning Chinook above there and now and now they're and now they're seeing like relatively robust populations and i say relatively robust because you know no chinook or steelhead population in north america is really really killing it right now but you know in they're in the thousands and they they had completely lost their summer run steelhead there wasn't a summer run steelhead run in the in the elwha and now they're getting like 2000 of them back every year and and so this is like completely colonizing behavior in these in these salmon which scientists don't understand super well how how salmon will colonize new habitats because you know obviously they're they're really well known for homing going back to where they were born but a certain segment of each population will specifically not go where they were born and kind of explore and see if there's greener pastures and so we're really seeing the power of that in the Elwha and the Chinook are coming back strong the Steelhead are coming back strong the Sockeye Run was also dead um, and now there's suddenly a Sockeye Run going back to uh, like Pleasant um, which is like off a tributary and they think that came about because there were uh, kokanee in there they think the kokanee may have you know, discovered a path to the ocean and became sockeye again. Um, so, so yeah, the, the, the meddling we do as, as humans is, is truly no match for the ability for nature to recover when we give it that opportunity. And that's just what we have to do in, in Idaho is we just need to, we, we know these dams are detrimental and we just need to get them out of the way and let those fish do their thing and try not to muck it up too much by, you know, backfilling with hatcheries and trucking them around and this and that and the other thing. I mean, we need to monitor it. We need to look for problem points. We need to fix ir- irrigation intakes and culverts. And there's a lot of work to be done, but like, but a lot of the, 
you know, the salmon basin especially is in really pristine shape in the clear water too. I mean, a lot like the entire lock saw and Selway are like all protected in like wild and scenic river and, and wilderness. And you know, like the middle fork of the salmon yeah, is, 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 is one of the most pristine ecosystems remaining in the world. The, it's in the middle of the Frank church river of no return wilderness. I floated through there and it's just, it's like, you've never seen clearer water. You've never seen more just intact habitat. Um, and, and I think given the, given the chance that those fish are going to come, come bouncing back and yeah, sure. There's lots of problems going on in the North Pacific too. The, the whole blob has returned that, you know, that patch of really warm water right. and ocean survival conditions aren't, aren't great. We've got a problem with predators at the mouth of the Columbia in, in the form of uh, sea lions. Um, but we're working on that. They're, <laughs> They're whacking and stacking those good sea lions, man. Uh, they're, they're killing like 900 of them a year now, which uh, which I which I find uh, just you know like it's it's so so amusing that like all the liberal Democrats from Seattle were supportive of that, and the Seattle Times uh, editorial board came out in favor of that and came out in favor of expanding it to include like Lake Washington and the Ballard Locks and. And they're like, let's kill all the sea lions. And I'm like, well, I mean, <laughs> you know, the sea lions are just responding to a natural, to a, a man-made bottleneck. So it's our fault, but you know, it's, it's also not the worst thing in the world you know, once you start managing an ecosystem, you really have to manage it. So right. I'm very much in favor right. of, of killing those sea lions. Um, or because we found that you can't remove them. They just come back no matter where you take them to. They did that with a famous big old male at the Ballard Locks when I was a kid. Um, they, they trapped it and took it. Uh, they took it down to San Francisco where there's a giant colony, you know, right there in the harbor um, in the waterfront. Right. Yeah. It was a collared lion and they released it. It was back at the Ballard Locks in two weeks. Wow. That's crazy. There's a lot of, there's a lot of problems, man, but you know, I, you know, these, these dam removal projects and, 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 you know, there's another big one that's, uh, uh, very becoming a very real possibility on the Klamath too. And they're talking about it on right. the rogue and, um, you know, smaller projects on like, you know, Malibu, even like Malibu Creek in Southern California, Ventura, Ventura Creek. Um, you know, I, I, I really think it's a, I think, you know, we built these dams with a, uh, a, a low degree of understanding of the effects they would have. And I think it's the right thing to do in many situations to get rid of them. I'm not saying that everywhere. I mean, like my trout buddies would shoot me for suggesting we take out the right. yellowtail dam on the Bighorn <laughs> or the Holter dam on the Missouri. You know, they, they, dams can be useful, can be helpful, but, you know, it, anywhere there's an adramus fish, it just doesn't really work that well. And, no. I mean, they're even doing it on the, like, the Penobscot. It, yeah. And, and on right. this, yeah. the, in the East Coast, there's there's a lot of, of similar projects going on uh, around the world. And I, and I think um, it's good that, that humanity has kind of come around to the idea that that these that these dams you know we, we've got to think of them as, as temporary and you know once they've served their purpose or or are no longer serving a good purpose um it's it's well worth the the investment to get them out of there well amen man um and uh and with that how uh what's the best 
method for folks to, to get in touch with you and to, to follow what you're doing. Um, you do an amazing job of uh, keeping everybody up to speed on, uh, on the, the issues that, uh, that concern hunters and anglers. So thanks for that. And uh, yeah, how do, they, how do they keep in touch with you? Yeah, um, uh, you can uh, you can give me a follow on Instagram. I'm at uh, at Sam Lundgren Media. Lundgren is L U N G R E N. Um, but yeah, just just check out uh, the Meat Eater website. Um, sign up for our newsletter. We've got a ton of great articles every week on everything from just goofy, funny stuff in our barroom banter series. I'm writing one about the the world record tsunami happened in alaska right now which is not useful information but it's it's interesting it's fun it's humorous (laughs) um and uh but i'm also working on stuff about you know some controversial bills in the montana new mexico legislatures right now so we really run the gamut there so yeah go to the meateater.com sign up for our newsletter and we uh uh we have a uh, a new fishing newsletter coming online here soon. So I don't know when this is, this podcast is going to run, but keep an eye out for that. Uh, that'll, that'll be a really cool thing. We've got a lot of really neat new fishing uh, content coming out in the, in the next couple months. Um, so yeah, sign up for our newsletter and, and stay posted. I think everybody's going to love it. Awesome, man. Well, I got to duck out of here and go and try to get a pike for dinner. So um <laughs> really appreciate your time and uh we'll uh we'll stay in touch and get out on the river here soon sounds good bud give me a shout if you're ever in town go to the februaryroom.com where you can access a complete library of our podcast and read more about our guests their fishing stories and favorite fly patterns we're always looking for exceptional fly fishing yarns and if you have one to spin shoot us an email at info at the The February Room is always free, but if you feel like throwing a nickel in the pond, we appreciate any additional listener support. For companies and individuals interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us for our media kit. Thanks for stopping by the February Room, and we'll see you down here next week.